The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning. It's Tuesday the 4th of July in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Morgan Stanley tells Bill Dudley he's wrong about the bond market as the yield curve heads back to the 1980s. The Bank of England's new policymaker says that rates may never come back down. And we hear from the boss of Watchfinder about the growing number of high-end, fake timepieces that are so convincing, even the experts are struggling to tell them apart from the real thing. Let's start, though, with a roundup of our top stories. Morgan Stanley's strashes say Bill Dudley has got it wrong on the bond market. The former head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York says that he expects 10-year US Treasury yields to rise to 4.5%, with high borrowing costs wreaking havoc on the economy. But the Wall Street Giants' macro strategy team disagree, calling the bond route long in the tooth, arguing that yields will fall back to lower levels. The route comes as a key segment of the US Treasury yield curve approached its most inverted level in decades. Ira Jersey, chief US interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, says it's all about a growing number of bets on further rate tightening. So it's going to stay inverted more than likely because remember that long end of the yield curve is taking into account what the market expectations are for the long term. So, you know, will inflation come down in 2025, 2026? The Federal Reserve will probably cut interest rates uh, once that happens. And so so the, the yield curve will likely stay inverted. Now, I think the question is, will it invert a little bit more before it starts to uninvert? Bloomberg's Ira Jersey says that he doesn't expect the curve to uninvert until sometime next year. A U.S. yield curve inversion has preceded every recession since the 1960s. Two of Wall Street's largest lenders are questioning the Fed's stressed test projections for their future income. Bank of America and Citigroup say they're now in discussions with the central bank over the calculations. Bloomberg's finance reporter Catherine Doherty breaks down the disagreement. Each of them differ in how they're saying their projections uh, are opposed or in opposition to the Fed. So Bank of America said in its statement that it's talking to the Fed to understand differences in its comprehensive income over this nine-quarter stress test period. And separately, Citi said it was looking in to understand differences in its non-interest income. So in B of A's case, this, the Fed's projection was a bit rosier. Uh, for some of Citi's forecasts, it was the opposite. So it was more of a negative figure. Catherine Doherty says the stakes for both banks are high as the Fed's annual stress test results help to determine investor payouts. Now, the US is preparing to curtail Chinese companies' access to cloud computing services from the likes of Amazon and Microsoft, that according to the Wall Street Journal. The report comes as China imposed restrictions on the export of two metals crucial to the production of semiconductor microchips. From next month, gallium and germanium, uh, along with their chemical compounds, will be subject to Chinese national security export controls. Matty Zhao, head of Asia-Pacific Basic Metals at uh, 
Bank of America says that restrictions will have an impact. It will definitely push up the cost in a big magnitude. Um, and Galen and Germanian are very important uh, metals for, like, for example, solar panel and yeah. semiconductors as well. So, of course, if this completely banned, it takes longer time for them to source the materials. Matty Zhao spoke to Bloomberg as China and the US increasingly go head-to-head in a battle for technological dominance in terms of quantum computing, AI and chip manufacturing. Here in the UK, the Bank of England's newest policymaker, Megan Green, is warning that interest rates may settle at higher levels permanently. Writing in the Financial Times, she says AI and green investments may boost economic growth and rates. Green also warns against complacency in the fight against inflation, suggesting she could back further interest rate rises when she joins the Monetary Policy Committee in July. Those comments come as major banks have been summoned to meet the UK's financial watchdog over low savings rates. The Financial Conduct Authority says that it expects chief executives from HSBC, NatWest, Lloyds and Barclays to answer questions about profiteering claims. Harriet Baldwin chairs the Commons Treasury Committee. Well, we think that they shouldn't be uh, recouping their profitability on the back of their most loyal savers. So where there's a loyalty penalty, you know, the regulator will be very concerned and we think that it will be hard for the banks to prove that they're treating their customers fairly. Conservative MP Harriet Baldwin's comments come as lenders face accusations of being quick to hike loan rates but slower to pass on higher borrowing costs to savers. Meanwhile, the government's in talks with insurers about a pledge to invest billions of pounds in startups and infrastructure projects. Bloomberg understands insurers could agree to invest about 5% of the defined contribution pots they manage. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, is due to give details of the plan in his Mansion House speech next week. The level of commitment over time could be in the tens of billions of pounds, short of the £50 billion pool proposed by the Lord Mayor of London, Nicholas Lyons. And lastly, Instagram's highly anticipated Twitter rival is expected to launch on Thursday. Threads will offer text-based posts that can be liked, commented on and shared. People will be able to follow the accounts that they follow on Instagram and keep their same username. The launch comes as Twitter limits the number of posts that users can see and reduces access to its tweak, tweet deck desktop. That is such a tongue twister. <laughs> but there we are. Those are our top stories, But can, but can you use it? That's the most important yes, thing. Yes, exactly. And will it be integrated uh, with threads as well? Look, uh, another social network to get a handle on. If you want a good briefing on this story, by the way, our opinion columnist Dave Lee has written a great piece on the terminal, which will tell you a little bit about the other challengers to Twitter that have tried to set up and the varied success they've had. And the question really of capacity. Twitter had these technical difficulties over the weekend where the number of posts people could read had to be limited and the the question I suppose the hope behind the threads app from Meta's mm. point of view is at least they have the engineering capacity, they have the servers, they know how to deal with billions of users yes. so at least a rival to Twitter could potentially have the at least technical backup to it that some of those other platforms have failed so far anyway to capture. Yeah I mean to my mind it just means a plethora of social media, just another platform that one has to kind of deal with, more, more output more inputs. Well we haven't had you know early on in the life of social media of course there was lots of platforms that yes. rose and died whereas we actually yeah. haven't had much of a change over recent years so perhaps this will be the next dare we call it a paradigm shift in 
social media. Do things reach the light of paradigm social media? Anyway, that's another subject for, uh, for uh, discussion. Um, another story that I've seen this morning that's uh, worth digging into around Credit Suisse, and this is uh, it's wealth staff being told to brush up their CVs and personal development plans ahead of a selection process for career progression as Credit Suisse integrates uh, with UBS. We knew this process was coming and that it was going to potentially be very difficult for those moving over from Credit Suisse because the bank is seeking to cut so many staff members. Um, but people being told, get ready. Yeah, but it's soon. It's mid-July, the appointments for uh, management levels within, uh, well, the UBS, so Credit Suisse um, people in, in UBS. Yeah, so it's actually very, very soon. Very interesting um, personnel issues that we need to think about. Uh, also, though, let's turn our attention to our top story. So the Morgan Stanley clash with the former New York Fed head, Bill Dudley, he's got a very bearish case in terms of 10-year Treasury yields uh, rising to 4.5%. Let's turn to Bloomberg's Eddie Vandervelt is with us in studio this morning for more on this. This question then of, of Bob Dudley and Morgan Stanley, uh, does this excite you in terms of, a, is it a clash of the titans? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I, I, Garfield's is certainly big shoes to fill, but I will try. Um, a curve inversion uh, in the US has reached, you know, extreme levels. We are really seeing the uh, 10-year yield significantly lower than two-year yield, something like 110 basis points. Now, the, the the big question is we will see re-steepening at some point, right? That's 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 bound to occur. It's a nat- it's a natural state for markets. The question is how does that occur? Do we see that the short end of the of the rates markets collapse with central banks crashing economies and inflation coming down as a result, or do we see ten-year yields uh, rising because economies remain strong and inflation only falls slowly? So the re-steepening is coming. The question is how, and it it that that means everything for markets at the moment. Mm. In terms of the depth of the U.S. yield curve inversion, I mean, do we still think that yield curve inversion is the strong signal of recession to come 12 to 18 months down the line or yeah, not? And, and that, that is absolutely the heart of the question, right? Um, I, I, I think that I think investors will be asking themselves, as they always do, is this time different for the yield curve, right? The yield curve has been a, a really, really strong indicator for future economic growth. And that inversion has, has always, you know, been it's a forecast for about 18 months into the future mm. this time it may be different it feels a little bit like the, the the causes are very different we're coming out of a pandemic we've had that ultra high inflation but growth isn't slowing at the pace that people were expecting it to right um we're not seeing the reason the u.s recession we're not seeing the jobs market slow so the evidence isn't there yet but, you know, the future is a murky place and the, the yield curve may well prove me wrong. Well, how much does the actions of the Federal Reserve that influence where this, this story goes next? Yeah, I think, yeah, so we, we, we're seeing these pauses from the RBA today, from the Fed, you know, uh, talk at the ECB. The question is, what do they come back with, right? If we see ultra hawkish policy... That's probably a sign that the that 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 growth is quite strong still. I think the fact that we are pausing at the moment is quite a, a good uh, development for the market. It, it shows that the central bankers are taking the transmission mechanism and the lags into account. Um, but I think beyond that, we probably see more divergence. So um, you know, we are seeing places like China almost in deflation, and in the UK almost double digit 
uh, inflation. So we are seeing some divergence in central bank policy going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating that there is such a clash within the markets, actually, in terms of, you know, heavyweight players have mm. very different views about what's happening in the bond markets. Eddie, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's Eddie van der Velt there. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Turning next to a really interesting conversation, Caroline, that you and Tom McKenzie have been having about watches and particularly fake watches yeah so-called frankenstein watches uh, are on the rise yeah that's not a term i was familiar with yeah me neither but it came up about a month ago where the swiss swiss watchmaker omega alleged that three former employees were actually involved in this criminal plot that resulted in the sale of a fake speedmaster it wasn't just any old sale it was an auction and this timepiece actually fetched three million dollars so it got a lot of people's attention a lot of focus um in in the industry around the fact that actually these quality fake watches or hybrid watches that are made with bits of, of old time pieces are now becoming so good that it's really, really hard to tell them apart from the real deal. And so we were speaking to Ayan van der Waal, who is the CEO of Watchfinder & Co. This is an online um, store mainly that deals in second-hand watches, of course. And he was asking buyers and sellers to be really vigilant about this because actually even they are struggling to tell the difference between genuine and counterfeit watches. Have a listen to what he had to say. How big an issue is this for the industry? It is. It's always been a problem. I mm. think uh, what we're seeing, we have consumers who want to be associated with, with luxury brands. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of accessibility, the price point and beyond. Uh, but what we're seeing in the last years is that the level of sophistication of these fake watches um, is uh, increasing uh, significantly. So in the olden days and the authentication of watches, it, it's kind of art and science. So there is a, a checklist that we have, but our watchmakers, when they feel a watch, uh, they have a, a first impression if it's real or not. In the olden days, you would say that roughly 20% uh, of watches required really further inspection to understand if it was a real or a fake watch. Today, it's more 80-20, so it's the other way around, where we really need to do very thorough testing and inspection uh, to understand if it's a genuine watch or not. Where are these being produced uh, on the continent? Are they produced elsewhere? What, uh, presumably, this is a function of those kind of record high prices that we saw for luxury handpieces, timepieces uh, uh, during the pandemic, and, and the stimulus checks that people were putting kind of putting into play to, to snap up these these watches. That must be a factor. And and then again, where are they being made, and to what extent is the industry? coming together to kind of fight this? So um, it's really a global problem because in order to uh, create uh, watches of, of that uh, quality, you need access to uh, specific tools and you need real technicians. Mm -hmm. You need watchmakers to be able to put those together. Uh, so it's not necessarily uh, one specific region um, uh, where uh, it comes from. 
Um, as an industry, what we're seeing is that, so for us, all of the watches that we sell, we own. And before we buy them, uh, all of the watches go through a 60-step process. So it's uh, an inspection of the watch cosmetically, mm -hmm. but it's also uh, checking if the watch is not uh, registered on any lost and stolen uh, uh, databases. Uh, and then it's authentication steps to, to match the serial number with the documentation. Um, and then step by step, every part is uh, inspected, after which we look at um, the functioning of the watch and then depending on what work we find needs to be done, um, we operate on these watches within our service center. And that is something that is um, not a standardized process, that is really our uh, process, but as, an, as a, one of the industry leaders, we encourage the industry as a whole to adopt uh, similar practices. So it's not just about fake watches, but it's also very much about lost and stolen watches. Okay, that's interesting. What are the brands that are most faked? So Rolex is uh, the most aspirational uh, luxury watch brand um, and uh, the highest demand, hence uh, it's the most uh, replicated. Um, but you, today you see uh, replicas or clone watches, very, very high quality watches of virtually all of the big luxury brands. So the, the whole gamma uh, is, uh, is represented today. For, for when it comes to Rolex, is there a percentage? Is it kind of 80% of the fakes are, are Rolexes? What, what's your kind of, is, is there a number you can put to that? approximately yeah I, it's difficult to put a number to it but if you look at the um, uh, the watch industry as a whole and uh, the, the proportion that Rolex has within it um, then you would say up to 50% is probably Rolex hmm. yeah. okay up to 50 okay fine has has it changed a great deal then as we saw the kind of market boom mm -hmm. now prices are coming down in terms of the secondary market has the level of kind of fake watches that you're finding has that changed in the last two five years compared to five years ago two years ago yeah so it, it's always been somewhat up and down and um the the percentage of fake watches that we get in is anywhere between 10 and seven eight percent on a yearly basis um i said i think the main difference that we're seeing is that the the level of sophistication of these watches uh, is changing but also that certain parts of the watch can be genuine but then there's fake parts being used um, uh, in the watch. Is there more that, that some of the luxury brands themselves could be doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of initiatives um, that brands are doing today uh, utilizing the blockchain, uh, for example, to, to register uh, all watches as a unique piece on, uh, on the blockchain. And um, there's also a lot of work being done uh, to understand uh, visual markers on a watch that make it very difficult uh, to mimic at uh, a level of quality in a fake watch. And a bit then, like you might do with, with banknotes, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And uh, so th there are uh, various initiatives in the industry that are being done. And as a pre-owned uh, player, uh, being part of the Richemont uh, group, we also get to collaborate directly with the brands and, and support in that um, in that mission. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Richemont, uh, you know, Cartier, um, Vachon, of course, not that... Mm -hmm. Own, own lots of those big brands um, and names. What do you do then if a customer sends in a fake watch or what do you do if somebody complains, I think you yeah. know, the watch I bought is fake? Or, I don't know. What's the well, that's, that's complicated because in many cases we don't assume that there's any um, wrongdoing uh, from, from the customer who wants to sell us the watch. So very often it's um, uh, met with surprise. Uh, depending on the jurisdiction, there's various things that we have to do. So in certain cases, we're not allowed to send the watch back. We need to hold on to it. In other cases, we can return the watch. But the return, first return the watch to whom? To the customer. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, it, it, the cases where it's us uh, selling a watch uh, that is um, then fake, that's our reputation that's on the line. And luckily, those cases are virtually non-existing in, in the 20 years that we've been, uh, we've been around. Uh, but typically, those are quite tough conversations to have with, uh, with our clients, yes. Yeah, I bet. That's a, probably a diplomatic way of saying, or under, underplaying how challenging that must be, that conversation. Talk to us about, before we let you go, about prices of, mm-hmm. of secondhand watches. They've come off quite a lot, particularly at the high end. Do you yeah. expect that to continue? Are we nearing a bottom? What are you so, seeing in terms of prices? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, what we've seen this this whole speculative wave in the last two or three years, that is not necessarily what is at the heart of uh, pre-owned watches. So mm. pre-owned watches is very much either a gateway into luxury watches at a more friendly price point, or it gives you access to watches that have been discontinued or watches that have um, uh, a, a different story to it. Um, speculation boom peaked really uh, April of last year, and since then, especially the the higher segment above ten thousand pounds have come down thirty forty percent. We now see it stabilizing, although it's still gradually um, sliding down. For us, we as as watchfinder, we're not interested in kind of the next crypto run. So for us, it's not about speculation. Stability is good, and it's purely to do with our ability to buy watches at the price right price point to be able to sell them at the right price point. Ian, I cannot let you go without a mention of a few of your favourites. You must see tens, hundreds of the best watches out there for collectors at home. I'm sure listening, what yeah. are your favourites? I'm so I'm lucky that we're part of the uh, Richemont Group, and uh, Lange and Zone uh, is is one of the the, the brands, one of the, the most established uh, maisons that we have. And uh, they released the Odysseus, which is their version of a steel uh, sports watch. And they just released the Chronograph in uh, uh, Watches and Wonders this year. And that to me is my my grail. Uh, but I have a lot more work to do before I can attain that. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.